Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 10th of May, 2023, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. We're delighted to be joined by Alex Thompson. And uh, we've also got Debbie Evans, a nursing correspondent with us today, plus a special guest. Um, so we're going to get kicked off with Richard Dearlove. Here he is. Uh, he is running uh, a blog, uh, oh, sorry, a podcast, I should say, uh, called One Decision. Uh, you'll find it, I believe it's onedecisionpodcast.com, but we'll, we'll, uh, we'll have the link to that in the show notes later on. Um, so this, of course, is a former uh, head of MI6, uh, the man who provided the uh, yellow cake evidence to uh, Tony Blair to justify the war in Iraq. Um, and uh, so uh, since then, he's been rabidly anti-Russian and anti-Chinese. Uh, but he was in Ukraine uh, last week. Uh, and so uh, he said this uh, on his most recent uh, podcast, I had extensive meetings, mostly with very senior officials uh, on the security side. It would be indiscreet of me to mention any names, but he did mention titles. Uh, so let's have a look and see who he met with. The head of the National Security and Defense Council for, of Ukraine, uh, the Assistant Minister of Defense, uh, the Prosecutor General, uh, the head of the Ukrainian uh, Verkhovna Rada's Defense Committee, uh, the head of Ukrainian foreign intelligence, uh, the head of military procurement, uh, the head of the drone design and production startup. So there's a startup in Ukraine which is uh, designing drones and producing them. Uh, and also uh, the uh, Ukrainian official in charge of EU integration. Uh, and this is what he said in his most recent podcast that they discussed. Uh, they discussed the breakup of Russia, um, talking about the massive stresses and strains in the Kremlin. Uh, which would be exacerbated by any Ukrainian military breakthrough. Uh, he talked about Ukraine's leaders uh, are masters of strategic deception, uh, that they've digitized the entire battlefield and have been particularly creative in their ability to design, produce, and deploy drones in the battlefield quickly, uh, that Ukraine needs to have F-16 strategic fighter jets so that they can fly deep into Russian territory and attack uh, Russian infrastructure uh, in Russian territory. Uh, and that Ukraine should also be given a sustained supply of tanks. And I note that he's choosing uh, Leopard 2s, uh, German tanks, not British tanks, but anyway, uh, but also more sophisticated infantry and weapons training uh, because they've lost, he acknowledged, uh, most of their experienced military officers and infantry troops. So he couldn't deny that. Uh, he went on to say that uh, NATO should extend uh, long-term security guarantees to Ukraine uh, at the upcoming NATO summit in Vilnius, Lithuania. Um, so effectively incorporating it into NATO. Uh, and uh, the, he said that the One Decision podcast is followed very closely in Kiev. Um, so uh, that was, that's the, the key points uh, from it. Uh, this is the website, One Posi uh, Decision Podcast. Welcome to the One Decision Podcast, they say. It's hosted by journalist Julia McFarlane and former chief of MI6, Sir Richard Dearlove. And their hit program looks at those seemingly small choices that ended up having an international impact. It's interesting that uh, on that uh, particular podcast, he was joined by uh, General Sir Richard Sheriff and also, uh, well, Tobias Elwood. Well, so the full, full, the full, team, full team was there. Yes, right. indeed. Um, so if we just put that one back on for just one second, Julia McFarlane, uh, I wanted to have a look at her. Uh, and uh, so she is former uh, ABC News in the United States, where she was foreign correspondent. Before that, she was a TV producer for BBC. Uh, but she is uh, also uh, one of the Forbes uh, 30 under 30 alumni. 
Have you heard of the 30 under 30? I have, yeah. Yes. So this is a, a, a scheme that Forbes runs where they publish the 30 of the most up-and-coming uh, under 30s leaders, business leaders, yeah, future leaders, future leaders uh, that are coming. So let's just uh, remind ourselves about uh, these types of uh, Forbes under 30s. 30 under 30 have collectively raised $5.3 billion in venture capital funding, says Chris Back here. Uh, but the Forbes 30 under 30 have also been arrested for frauds and scams worth uh, over $18.5 billion. Now, I'm not suggesting that she in any way is involved in any frauds or scams, but it's just interesting that, that she decides to promote herself in this way under the circumstances because, you know, we've even got names like Sam Bankman-Fried uh, uh, being on this list uh, and, uh, and others that have, uh, you know, effectively misrepresented their business uh, acumen and the, the, the ability of their business to make profits in order to raise venture capital money, which then turned to dust. Um, so, Alex, uh, I'd be interested in your thoughts on the Dear Love visit, but also what Dear Love's doing with his podcast. The podcast name, for starters, Mike, it's almost identical to a soppy boy band from the 2000s, isn't it? It's a, a bit of a weird name. I have vaguely come across this McFarlane uh, Dear Love double act in the past, uh, in, and I was vaguely, dimly aware that there was uh, such a thing as a podcast that the Kiev intelligentsia listened to to get what the Ukrainians would call their temniki, their, their marching orders, their, their talking points. Uh, but Sir Richard, of course, didn't uh, uh, claim to be exhaustive in his listing of whom he had met by job title. Uh, the big uh, red jumping up and down omission from that list, uh, which he may actually, whom he may actually have met, would be the head of domestic intelligence. Now, people might say, well, he's former head of MI6, foreign intelligence chief is his counterpart. Yes, of course. But in many countries, and especially in Ukraine, MI6 has an extremely close relationship with the domestic security service. So that in Ukraine would be the feared SBU that has rest arrested people, including, uh, uh, of course, the, the foreign commentators uh, now that, uh, that, that have previously been arrested. Uh, he may well have uh, spoken to them, and if so, there would be much more, you know, rolling up of shirt sleeves. It, it is a bit odd, isn't it? Is is he telling the British what to think about Ukraine, or the Ukrainians what to think about Britain, or the bien pensant in both capital cities what to think about each other? Well, I mean, it seems to me, Brian. I don't know what your thoughts are, but but we have we've had you know a, a constant stream of uh, British senior British government officials, whether that be Boris Johnson or whoever, heading over to Kiev. Chief uh, of the defence staff. Effectively encouraging them to maintain this this war. Uh, and I just wonder, is that what he was uh, doing there? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm sure they are desperate. They're desperate to keep it going because of, what did he mention? He mentioned the breakup of Russia. So they don't want to stop the war because they want to keep... Uh, putting pressure on Russia to suffer on the battlefield and stir up internal domestic political trouble. So he said exactly what the aim is. But I've got, I've got to say, I wonder whether he in particular has been sniffing a little bit too much of the yellow cake because to fly F-16s into Russia, I mean, what is he thinking of? This is, this, is, this is not a realistic possibility because what the battlefield is demonstrating is the, the Russians are completely dominating the airspace, um, principally with their 
air-to-surface, uh, sorry, uh, surface-to-air uh, missile systems, which are proving to be unbelievably effective and uh, on a scale that uh, the West can't compete with. Um, and then we've got the situation at the moment where uh, there's clear panic in the Western camp that the HIMARS are no longer working effectively, nor the American glide bomb systems, because the Russian electronic warfare is uh, disrupting their targeting. This is this is clearly acknowledged. So um, at the moment on the battlefield, the one thing he's admitted that's correct is that the Russians are wiping out the Ukrainian military. The experienced troops are already dead and the raw troops are dying at an increasing rate. And yet he thinks he's going to ramp up the war and do damage to Russia. I mean, <laughs> is he on drugs? Is it the yellow cake that's causing the problem? I, I don't know. Uh, well, I don't know what else to say. But what's clearly going on now is that it's not the UK government that is uh, controlling policy with Ukraine. We've now got these unaccountable individuals who are going into Ukraine and mixing it with the team. I mean, what is the accountability over dear love? Is he being held to account by Parliament? Is he being held uh, to account by any other groups? Alex, I don't... I well, don't I, well, I'd just like to ask you this, Alex. I mean, is it is it likely that uh, that, that trip, trip was him just taking a flight over there or was this some kind of sanctioned back channel? Uh, the latter, overwhelmingly likely. Now, I don't want to be using stereotypes about uh, SIS, MI6 popular... Uh, name for it, uh, but it is uh, acknowledged to be true that their former directors, as with former CIA directors in the USA, are uh, a breed apart even from retired directors of other intelligence agencies. You do not get, even in these politicized days, retired directors of GCHQ or of the security service popularly known as MI5 popping over to do diplomacy. But MI6's role is diplomatic. In that sense, it's in an odd position uh, because of the three uh, British classic intelligence agencies, they are burgeoning these days. We have a health security agency and everything, but the classic three, uh, it is MI6 alone, which has no policy making function. There are parts of MI5 and parts of GCHQ that do set government policy uh, on behalf of the parent departments and ultimately the secretary of state under whom they operate. MI6 is purely a service, but that doesn't mean that it has less uh, role in shaping real events than others. It has more because it is intertwined with foreign office for diplomatic cover. So anytime uh, a former head of MI6, a former C travels abroad, of course he will coordinate that, even if only as a courtesy with the current head of MI6, which means consulting the foreign secretary. So there is no conceivable way that this is anything like a private trip. I do suspect that Tobias Elwood is another one of these unaccountable chaps because he is in Parliament and accountable, but of course he chairs the Defence Select Committee. And we strongly suspect that uh, we know he's a reservist for 77 Brigade. We strongly suspect he's been deployed while um, uh, serving in Parliament. So we've, we've had articles written by Philip Ridley about the conflict of interests that abound there, the conflicts of oaths. And the latest on that for viewers is um, Philip Ridley is now getting stonewalled again by all the people to whom he's written with his freedom of information requests about whether Elwood has been deployed or um, mobilised, to use the formal term, since he's been sitting in Parliament, more particularly since he's chaired the Defence Committee in Parliament. And uh, he now requests that freedom of information lawyers get in touch with us. You could use the contact 
contact Alex Thompson function on the website. I would very strongly endorse that uh, anyone with relevant expertise gets in touch so that I can pass that to Phil, because I think that between them, Elwood and Dear Love as a double act are running British foreign policy for this war. Yes. Thank you, Alex. Okay, well, just to uh, finish this little segment off, USA Today here with a report on American Abraham's tanks going to Ukraine. Uh, But at the same time, we're learning that these tanks are going to be stripped out of equipment that the Americans are worried if, if the tank falls into Russian hands in the uh, forthcoming Ukrainian uh, counteroffensive, if it ever happens. Um, so they're pulling equipment out of the tanks. Um, what is uh, What are we starting to see, though? The reality is we're starting to see that Western equipment, military equipment, is not performing on the battlefield. So the Ukrainians are being given defective field guns. They're being given old vehicles. They're being given the hand-me-downs of uh, NATO and the European Union, and they're beginning to come Sorry, to complain about it on the battlefield. Uh, but of course, this is going to reflect badly on US weapons manufacturers. But let's have a look at this little glossy video clip about uh, US tanks going to Ukraine. tanks are the most capable tanks in the world. <clears throat> They're also extremely complex to operate and maintain. So we're also giving Ukraine the parts and equipment necessary to effectively sustain these tanks on the battlefield. When we begin, we'll begin to train the Ukrainian troops on these issues of sustainment, logistics, and maintenance as soon as possible. Tanks also provide an ability to move Uh, efficiently around a battlefield, but of course they have much more firepower. And so it's perfectly understandable why President Zelensky, facing what he's facing in the Donbass and expecting to face those same threats uh, going forward in coming weeks, uh, would want, uh, you know, some tanks, additional tanks. It's not like he doesn't have any, but additional tanks uh, to support his offensive uh, and defensive operations in that particular part of the country. So the video came originally out of the U.S. Department of Defense, presumably complete with the soothing uh, music as we uh, see the weapons of war shipped overseas. But of course, what was the line? Well, these tanks um, are branded as being the best in the world. And then uh, Biden is happy to say, well, actually, we've got a few problems with them because they're very maintenance heavy. The Ukrainians are going to need additional support. And so the wheel turns. These are not the wonder weapons that are going to uh, change the course of the war. These are the hand-me-downs from the U.S., just to keep the war going and the Ukrainian casualties continuing so that they can keep the pressure on Russia. Mm. We'll leave that segment there, but uh, all is not well inside the EU, Alex, partly as a result of the uh, Russians, uh, what is it, uh, the fact we can now see that they're um, dug into their positions and they're not going anywhere soon. This has had a particular effect on the Austrian population, Brian. Now, the Austrians are neither an Eastern European nation uh, nor a very new joiner 
of the EU. They joined in 1995, and of course, they're still not in NATO because of their constitutional um, allied-imposed uh, neutrality, which the Germans repudiated with allied consent, but the Austrians hung on to in 1955 when they regained their full sovereignty. Um, so they are in EU and also now in PESCO, the EU's military cooperation arrangements, uh, but they are very disenchanted with what has happened to the purchasing power of the euro, uh, their energy bills, etc., their trade with the East, because they used to be a listening post and a trading post for East and West, the clues in the country name Österreich, Eastern Empire, uh, they used to be the, the easternmost outpost of Western Europe. Well, what's this led to? It's led to, even as uh, uh, long ago now as a year, uh, June last year, Express in Austria was reporting that there was a hammer blow that the word Uxit, uh, the Austrian version of Brexit, uh, was on the agenda because 54% of Austrians, these these very, uh, in average terms, bourgeois Central European people who, who like to go with the narrative, certainly in COVID, they were 54% were now saying that they did no longer they no longer wished Europe uh, the the uh, country to be a member of the European Union. Quite staggering, and they particularly, according to the write up in Express of this Eurobarometer poll, which was a thousand people in each of the 27 member states, they particularly had problems with the uh, blitzartig, the lightning uh, quick way in which uh, a, a well-known, fantastically corrupt country, Ukraine, suddenly in a matter of months in early 2022, became an accession candidate for the EU. Um, and it was the sanctions uh, imposed upon Russia that also was the uh, straw that broke the camel's back for many Austrians. What's new in this story? Well, yesterday was Europe Day. EU Day would be a more correct term because I always tell Dutch officials when they uh, say you're leaving Europe to go to Britain. I say, no, I'm staying in Europe. I'm leaving the EU. Um, what's happened now is that uh, Alexander van der Bellen, who is a, a Green Party uh, politician and now the president, not the chancellor, but the this head of state in Germany, in, in Austria, the, the, the federal uh, president, has, according to the same newspaper, Express, warned Austrians on the occasion of the EU's annual Europe Day uh, that even thinking of leaving the EU is dangerous. What could he possibly mean? Is there a threat in here? Well, the write-up says uh, that, uh, that then they cite what we just showed, the Eurobarometer, that's the, uh, the Brussels-based EU polling outfit. Uh, they, they cited this survey, um, and it was, uh, according to this write-up, now 56% of Austrians who wanted out of the EU, not 54. So it's you know a, a, a larger majority than the Scottish referendum, for example, in 2014. And uh, this is a very current issue in social media. People watching Mark Anderson will have seen in recent weeks that he has a poster displayed uh, with a cross-party initiative to get a referendum to leave the EU. And uh, so von der Bellen says that even the idea that we could leave the EU is dangerous. Uh, it says uh, it might see, he says it might seem an innocent enough thing to do and it might seem a, 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 an attractive option, but it could uh, go wrong very quickly. Ganz schnell nach hinten losgehen. And he says Brexit has shown how quickly things could go wrong at this uh, Europe gala in the Sofia and Zealand. Again, an implied threat because, uh, you know, Britain has many problems uh, and has had since 2016, or if you count from 2020, when we definitively left the EU. Uh, but we can't say that we became a basket case overnight, economically or politically. And if to the extent we did, we did it to ourselves. So it's a bit surprising there. And uh, the show notes will contain the um, link to this as well. Uh, which is uh, a write-up by Defuckle 2.0, uh, 
uh, also known as Epimetheus, another very good Substack uh, blog, uh, reporting uh, this uh, express uh, coverage of von der Bellen's, uh, President von der Bellen's speech about it. And the key bit here, here is a graphic, not very sharp, but pulled out by um, uh, the uh, blogger here, um, Epimetheus, from the uh, Eurobarometer poll, showing that there is a massive spectrum uh, of opinion in the EU. This is not per country, do you want to leave or not? This is not a yes, no. But the question here asked in the 27 member states was, are you optimistic or not? Are you pessimistic about the future of the EU? The optimists are the Irish Republic massively, Denmark, and then the Balts and uh, Poland, of course, Sweden. Um, and down at the other end, the unsurprisingly, the Eurosceptics of the moment, Hungary, Slovakia, France, more than half, uh, are pessimistic, uh, or not, but nearly, yes, I think it is half or just about, are, are pessimistic, and the most pessimistic of all, the Greeks. So uh, lots of here, lots to worry the EU, I would say, in this poll. And uh, the FACL the continues the, the write-up saying that the bottom line here is, here's a very striking way of thinking of what the EU actually is. It's the combination of three, ra three waves of losers. It's the countries that lost the Blitzkrieg, in May 1940, France, Benelux, Denmark, Italy uh, as a loser when it lost uh, its uh, Mussolini government, and Germany and Austria, which of course joined much later um, as uh, losers of the end of the Second World War. There's one particular view being stated here, a very central European view, which is that the EU is an Anglo-American bloc. There's something to that, but don't underestimate the amount of uh, European deep statery involved in setting up the EEC and, and guiding it. Uh, but what does De Fackel say is this mature Austrian blogging view? He says that it does not mean, this does not mean that the original Nazis remain with us today, but perhaps it is worth pointing out that in terms of strategy, there exists a strange kind of resemblance between the designs for fortress Europe and the present day incarnation of the EU. That's not just a cheap swipe there because Austria has been almost unilaterally holding up Romania and Bulgaria's accession to Schengen, the uh, passport free or the passport checks, but um, um, the, the, the freedom of movement zone within the EU. Romanians still can't just come and settle at will uh, in Schengen without paperwork, largely because Austria says we have enough of you R Romanian gypsy vagabonds in Vienna already. Uh, Orban in Hungary has, uh, has uh, even as he drifts away from some of the, the the former close allies that he had, like Poland in the Visegrad group, because he's much more pro-Russian than them, um, Orban has actually championed the Romanians and said this is just Austrian lies. So you can see another very grave fissure opening up in Central Europe, not just over um, you know, uh, uh, trite issues of are you for or against Putin, but, but really questions of should there be freedom of movement, should we be imposing sanctions on external parties. Next door in Germany, What's been going on there? German MI5, the Verfassungsschutz, literally the Constitutional Protection Office, so that's the federal level interior security service, uh, has finally branded uh, the youth wing of Alternative für Deutschland, that party with a strong representation in, Bru in Brussels and Strasbourg now that you've seen clips of on UK Column News, together with two more obscure organisations, the Institut für, für Staatspolitik and Ein Prozent. All three, it's now called Confirmed Extreme Right Endeavours, Bestrebungen, very vague language. And in the press release that uh, announced this, 
Uh, bear in mind, this is a, uh, the youth wing of a party with parliamentary representation in the Bundestag and in Strasbourg at the European Parliament. Uh, that's, well, I won't read it all, but uh, you can see how uh, bureaucratic these sentences are, as you'd expect of a German agency. What's the, the, the meat of it's down the bottom, that the reason why uh, Alternative für Deutschland's youth wing, Junge Alternative, is now allowed to be spied on by all means fair and foul, is that they, are, they have the wrong concept of folk. Very, very odd. Those who've been to Berlin will know that the Bundestag, the German parliament, still is dedicated, as it's chiseled into the stone there, dem Deutschen Volker, to the German people. This was uncontroversial when the Germans started from scratch with their new constitution in 1949, the Grundgesetz. All of a sudden, after decades of Germany saying, uh, because we are an ethnic folk, you guest workers, Gastarbeiter, will not become citizens and you can't bring your wives over and have children here and you won't learn German. All of a sudden, what the German equivalent of MI5 is saying is uh, we've got to squeeze these, uh, this party out of society, starting with its youth wing, because it is biological in its understanding of what the people is. Uh, this is the same issue that we've been covering and, of course, 21st Century Wire with John Waters talking from Ireland about the draft law there, which will make it um, uh, reverse the burden of proof that if you say Ireland belongs to the Irish people in an ethnic sense, uh, you're automatically condemned unless you can persuade the court otherwise. So the uh, the, the, the Verfassungsschutz here, the German uh, security service, is saying you cannot be ethno-culturally uh, nationalist anymore. This is dangerous to the constitution. So they have reinvented the constitution to that extent. People wanting a write-up in English could do worse than look at Remix, which I find very responsible in its reporting, uh, which has got a coverage in English of this headline. That'll be in the show notes uh, and rightly uh, points out in the byline that this means mass surveillance of all members of AFD's youth wing is now permitted. I suspect this won't be the first such case in the EU. The party leaders of the, the, the adult party, Hrupula uh, uh, and Weidel, have said that they have no justification in any of their party documents that would make it comprehensible why the Germans have taken this step at intelligence level. And there is the suspicion, writes Remix, that the agency in question is using this new classification of the youth wing of their party uh, to influence legal disputes with the AFD. And I do know firsthand that there are former heads of uh, the Verfassungsschutz who have personally threatened politicians in Germany. If you uh, uh, do not toe the line, you could end up in the graveyard, is, is the phrase that has been used by some heads of the Verfassungsschutz in the past. So they're, they're not just uh, doing it for show. They, they really could be some serious repercussions for AFD. The party, of course, of Christina Anderson and others whose clips have been so, so much appreciated uh, by some of of our viewers. Finally, in this segment, it's not just the Germanics, it's the French as well, because the French, according to their own equivalent of the World Service, their publicly funded Radio France International, the headline that they want you to come away with, ironically under the banner, right to protest, is, or the, the, the strap line on, uh, for the website, is that France is to ban the right to protest for all so-called far-right extremist demonstrations. So good they named it twice, not just far-right, not just extremists, but far-right extremists. Of course, you've got the obligatory uh, shot of the masked hoodies here to frighten people. This was an annual demonstration commemorating somebody who uh, died nearly th well, three decades ago, Sébastien Desieux. Uh, but uh, the protests this year led the Interior Minister, Gérald Darmanin, to ask the police chiefs, there's one remove already from the Interior Minister, it's the police chiefs locally who would, be, who would have to ban whatever they want to classify as far-right demonstrations. And he's very um, cheekily and blatantly, blatantly saying, go ahead, my police chiefs, and do this in every prefecture in France. And if you get challenged in court, 
the courts will be with you, we hope. So he's passing the buck to the courts. Um, he knows here, uh, does Darmanin, that there's no constitutional ground to stand on, but uh, it's been covered by Freddy Bonton and others recently, again for both us and 21st Century Wire, that France has a very weak constitutional court these days. Uh, but even on those uh, that thin ice, the French are now saying, we, we don't want to take the risk, but we have orders from on high to stop the wrong kinds of people coming out on the streets. So we hope the police will do as they're told. OK, Alex, thank you very much for that uh, worrying section, I think, as we see freedoms uh, withdrawn from people, whether it's in France or in the UK or elsewhere. But of course, the state is also going for our children. And uh, the UK columns had quite a lot of uh, emails and comments coming in about the sexual grooming of children. I just chose this email today, which I found very interesting. It says, hi, UK column. Just wanted to give you a bit of information. A friend of mine is a secretary at a primary school. She told me that when the children are leaving, that's leaving the school finally, the school are asked to fill in a questionnaire from the council. Two of the questions are, what sex was the child at birth? And the second one is, is the child still the same sex now? I thought this was quite shocking propaganda from the council, especially as this is a primary school. You may be aware of this, but sending it in case you're not. Uh, well, of course, all of this hangs on the back of uh, what many people just regard as blatant sexual grooming of children. Uh, mass resistance site here has got quite a long article um, and some embedded video. Unfortunately, the audio on the video is not very good, but if you listen carefully, you can hear what's being said. And these are parents um, uh, challenging lo local library officials about the types of books that they're promoting as suitable for children. Uh, we've also got this one uh, here, which was sent in to us. So we've got Stop World Control is basically reporting on grooming, which they're tra tracking back to the World Health Organization, uh, in particular, teaching very young children about masturbation. And embedded in the uh, website page, if you scroll down, is a video, which I understand is actually in Dutch, uh, but it's a dialogue uh, where young children are being encouraged to masturbate. And this is policy that uh, tracks back to the World Health Organization. Now, of course, in UK, many parents have been speaking out on this, and a number of ladies in Wales have been making a great effort to challenge the Welsh government over their grooming policies of young children. So we're delighted to uh, bring Kim Isherwood on screen with us today because um, Kim has done so much work over so long to challenge what's happening. But it now appears that a very disgruntled Welsh government is trying to uh, push back. Uh, we'll let uh, Kim tell the story. Welcome to UK Column, Kim. We can't. Unfortunately, we can't hear you. Can you hear uh, me now, Brian? I can. Well done. Sorry about that. Thank you for having us on, Brian. Thank you for this opportunity again. Okay. Well, um, Kimberly, for people who may not know you, just very quickly tell us what you and the other mothers have been doing in Wales to challenge these horrible policies from the Welsh Government. Well, to cut a long story short, we've taken part in, obviously, government consultation on this new sex education, petitions. We've gone through the whole process. Um, we've rejected the government's um, uh, 
plans and for the sex education in overwhelming numbers. They've gone against us at every point and we had no option but to take them to court. We attempted to get this um, an injunction on this while we went through a judicial review. The Welsh Government misled the court and said an injunction is not possible because this education is lined up, fired up, ready to go. We've since discovered that's not the case in all schools. We took, um, we had a judicial review in November. We have lost all parental rights over our children's education. This is a massive concern for the whole of the UK, especially as we share the judicial system with England. So they have, um, in law, removed all parental rights over our children's education. They've put a massive um, costings on us as well. And more recently now, they've come after just five parents in this country for in excess of £50,000, basically, because we dare to challenge the government. It's not just the fact that we dare to challenge the government. They are now um, threatening removal of our assets. So they really do, they're aggressive in their approach and they really do want to make it difficult for us. And like I said, this, this is concerning for the whole of the UK because we're all caught up in this education. But here in Wales, you know, we, we've attempted to take it to the courts for a fair process. That doesn't seem to be happening. We're in the appeal process now, waiting to hear if we have been awarded this appeal. But the government are trying very, very hard to price us out with the threatening emails. They are adamant that they want full control of all children from age 36 months for this graphic sex education and these baseless, dangerous, unethical ideologies, basically, is a massive power grab in this country. And the government are, they, they are bullying us. There's no two ways about that. They are bullying the people at the bottom of the food chain, even though we've gone through the process. As citizens in this country, we have taken part in the consultations. We have taken part in petitions. We've done everything we should have in um in democracy, but obviously that doesn't seem to be existent anymore in Wales. Uh, Kim, thank you very much for that excellent summary. One of the things, apart from the policy itself, the thing that I find so offensive is that, of course, uh, the Welsh government uses public money, money which it's taken from the public in the first place, to uh, fight through the courts to quash any dissenting voice coming from members of the public. It's it's an obscene misuse of public funds, in, in my opinion. But we've got a document here. This, this is um, a letter that was sent to you from the Welsh government. Um, I'll put both parts up on screen so that people can freeze the screen and look at it. But essentially, I understand this is where the Welsh government is now coming for you and the other brave mums um, to uh, to basically try and, and get you for costs. Is that right? Yeah, well, it's not just... So they haven't just come after the claimants. We've set up a group called Public Child Protection Wales, and we set up that group um, for the wider issues and the safeguarding policies in this country. So this group, we set up the fundraising platform for to raise money for this court case, and now the government want PCP as a claimant as well. So essentially what they're saying is anyone who collects money for this case are liable for the bill. So, yeah, it's really, it is rather concerning. You know, there's a lot of confusion going on and they believe they can just take money from any group willy-nilly. But that's, that's what we're getting from what they're saying. 
Yeah, so so the, the the risk for other groups who may decide to campaign on other subjects is if you stand up against the government, they're going to come for the, for the for your funding that you've collected in order to to be able to run the campaign. It's a sort of backdoor attack. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, you know, this is um, the government lawyers. So you expect uh, um, professionalism, you know, top, top, top of the league for professionalism. But they haven't even checked their bank account before sending us threatening letters. Their figures aren't correct. You know, you would expect them to be airtight in this approach. They can't even be airtight in their threats. So, again, that's quite concerning with the level of professionalism there. Does the left hand know what the right hand is doing? You know, that's a question. I'd like to ask. Okay, and Kim, you responded to the uh, letter that you had from the Welsh government, and you've been kind enough to send that, this through to me. We can obviously bring it up on screen. Um, I'll read a little bit of it, and then I'll pass back to you for, for comment. Um, but it says, of course, thank you for the letter dated the 5th of May. As you know, we've not received notice of whether our appeal to the Court of Appeal has prevailed. We believe your aggressive approach is a means of interfering with our ability to conduct our appeal, a tactic by the state against impecunious individuals seeking to protect their and other children by taking their available funds so as to hamper, reduce their legal and campaigning abilities. These are not the acts of a fair administration. That's a very powerful statement. And then you go on to question the sums of money um, that are mentioned because um, you are saying that they have been inaccurate in the figures that they've been demanding from you. Um, what else would you add to that, Kim? Well, I, I, um, I get permission to speak on behalf of the claimants. As you know, it's not easy standing up to government. So there are confidence issues amongst us. And to tell you the truth, I am the strongest in the group and I am glad that I, it is me opening these emails because the truth is this, Brian, if these emails were being opened by other claimants, I don't think they could handle it as well as myself, you know? So the fact they come through me first to soften the blow, that, I, I think that's really good because, like I said, most people reading these emails, they would panic, you know, they would be scared. Um, myself, I keep telling you I'm a child from the streets, you, you can't scare me, you know, I come from the bottom anyway. But other people out there, they are scared. You know, they are fearful. And we are seeing this, you know, rolling out across the country. People are being uh, targeted by the schools and different different uh, agencies throughout the local authority. So this is an attack on everyone at every single level. But like I keep saying, I'm really concerned about about the the claimants who aren't as strong. You know, this these are threats. They are serious threats. And when they threaten us with assets, you know, we haven't got assets. This is a child protection issue. This is an educational issue. We are not suing the government because they built their wall six inches over our threshold. This is an issue where democracy has failed in this country. So I see this as a unique case. And I believe that the government's aggressive response as well is um, quite unique. And it'll be interesting to see just how this is going to play out over the next few weeks. Kim, thank you very much for that excellent summary. Now, just to make this black and white, um, obviously you need support from the public in every every way that's possible uh, because this is going to affect every child in the country, every grandchild. Um, but in financial terms, how much 
do you need to raise in order to deal with the attack by the Welsh government? How much money does your group need? We initially had a target of £100,000 for the judicial review, but with the government's aggression, Brian, to be honest, we're seriously considering um, taking this to Strasbourg as soon as possible. So we do need a lot of money. We need to, you know, the higher the court, the louder the message. This is for the whole of the UK. So I can't give you an exact figure right now because this is unfolding in real time. The game is changing daily, but we are looking now... um, we're expanding our horizons and we are looking to take this further and higher up the chain. So we will be looking for another substantial amount of money. But, you know, what is this? This these this cost is nothing when you consider the implication on, on the children, yes. on children's innocence. You know, it's worth every single penny. So, again, we will be looking for a substantial amount of money. Our initial target was £100,000. Okay, Kim, thank you for that. And I'm going to say to the UK column audience, I believe it's well within the power of the UK column audience to raise the sums of money that these ladies need. Uh, The figure in my head as a starting point is another 50,000. But I believe this cause is the cause we should be supporting. It's about children in this country, children, grandchildren. UK column audience could make a difference to what these ladies are doing. Yeah. Thank you, Kim. We, look, we just need to say, don't send the money to no, us. No, uh, absolutely, don't send the money to us. Um, uh, send it through the PCP campaign. Thank you for re- yeah. reminding me of this. It's a very important thing. But I'd like to say that in the past, UK column audience worldwide has demonstrated its ability to raise some pretty impressive sums of money to help people who, for example, have been imprisoned And this is another cause where a large number of people giving a little bit could make a huge difference. Now, Kim, you're going to join us in extra time. So we'll thank you. We'll leave it there. Um, UK column members can join us for extra time and can ask questions through the chat box if you would like. Okay, Debbie, uh, welcome to the programme. Let's uh, move on to health matters. Yes, thank you. Good afternoon. Uh, Well, as you know, I've been saying for a very long time um, and I've been speaking to a lot of nurses for a very long time about the quality of nursing that's going on in the NHS at the moment. So my question really is, is who is nursing you? Do you know who is looking after you? Do you know who's looking after your relatives? Because I've been suspecting for a long time that the nurses, some of the nurses that we're seeing practising aren't qualified. And I was um, grateful to Alex for sending me through this story um, from America Um, It's been issued from the Office of the Inspector General in the US Department of Health and um, Human Services. And it's launched Operation Nightingale, 2023 Operation Nightingale Enforcement Action. And this is um, an enforcement action to apprehend individuals who have been engaged in schemes to sell false and fraudulent nursing degrees. I'll let you freeze the screen on that. So if anybody wants to read it, there's also been an announcement on YouTube from the Office of Inspector General. So do have a look at that. But there's a a nice little graphic that will just show you very simply what it was all about. And you can see there that in the fraud scheme, recruiters helped aspiring nurses obtain fake nursing degree diplomas and transcripts from accredited 
Florida-based nursing schools, the aspiring nurses who acquired the bogus diplomas and transcripts used them to qualify for the National Nursing Board exam. Upon successful completion of the board exam, the aspiring nurses became eligible to obtain licensure in various states. Once licensed, the aspiring nurses were able to obtain employment in the healthcare field. 7,600 fake nursing diplomas and transcripts issued. 25 individuals have already been charged, and those are the states we're looking at. Now, if that wasn't as shocking enough, at the same time that Alex very kindly sent me that story over, I was also looking at a story that was released by the Daily Mail to do with nurses in the UK. And you can see here that we've got 500 NHS nurses could be struck off over fraudulent Nigerian exams. Now, this was um, to do with a computer-based test, a CBT, that they're meant to, uh, nurses abroad are meant to take at home um, before they come to this country, and then they take a practical test once they arrive here. And that hasn't been happening. So these, we've had nurses that are practicing and midwives that are not qualified. So in my day, we had uniforms that and, and labels, name badges, and often we had differences in whether that was a first-year student nurse, a qualified nurse. Now there is no differentiation. So ask yourselves, who is looking after you? And together with that, um, a, a story in the Nursing Times this week, which would suggest that nurses are now taking over advanced procedures from doctors um, at this London hospital. Now, because this story is behind a paywall, I'm afraid I can't see the precise procedure that's being taken over. However, I am very concerned. And after speaking to Jenna Platt and to also Fran Adams and many other nurses, we have to ask ourselves, who is looking after us? And I would also say today, it's just been announced in the Telegraph that we're looking at school leavers. Wait for this. Honestly, I couldn't believe it when I saw it today. School leavers will now be working as doctors on the wards straight from school. And it's going to be called a medical doctor apprenticeship. So you could be being looked after by a nurse without being qualified. And you could also have a school leaver that's going to be on a medical doctor apprenticeship. So... That's what the NHS is going to be staffed with. So watch this space for some more on that. Okay, thank you, Debbie. Uh, we have a new announcement from the MHRA uh, about Spikevax, which is a Moderna vaccine. Uh, this, of course, was given uh, approval uh, in January this year, final approval. Uh, it's now been uh, given final authorization for children aged six months to five years. Uh, that's the latest announcement from yesterday. The vaccine has been their words, has been authorised in this new age group uh, after it has been found to meet our standards of safety, quality and effectiveness with no new safety concerns identified. In reaching their decision, the MHRA's experts carefully reviewed data from an ongoing clinical trial involving 6,388 children aged six months to five years. Uh, the common side effects were in keeping with what can be anticipated from a vaccine in this age group. They don't see, say anything about what they would describe as uncommon side effects, but okay. Uh, they, of course, want to uh, spread out the responsibility for this. Is for the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation to determine if the vaccine will be recommended for use in this age group as part of the UK's COVID-19 vaccination programme. Uh, this authorisation granted by the MHRA is valid in Great Britain only 
and was authorized via the European Commission's decision reliance route. So, uh, Alex, I just very want, very briefly wanted to get your thoughts on this issue of the European Commission decision reliance route, because I thought Brexit. Yes, I have never heard of a European Commission decision route for the MHRA. Was not the same, or well, Debbie can fill us in, but I seem to remember from editing her blogs that uh, Debbie pointed out that the MHRA was vaunting and almost taunting the continental Europeans uh, recently by saying we have regained full medical sovereignty. We are the decision makers. And all of a sudden, when it suits them, uh, they can uh, uh, hightail it back to the EMA in Amsterdam uh, acting in its European Commission guys. So I wonder whether Debbie can fill us in on that. Um, have, have they, uh, as I think they have at the MHRA, said that they have regained full medical sovereignty? Uh, well, uh, it's interesting, Alex and Debbie, because uh, th what they did say is that they they authorized it via the European Commission's decision reliance route, but then we made an independent decision to go with it. I can feel a question coming on for the board meeting on Tuesday, the 16th of May. This Tuesday coming, this will be a question for the board meeting. But one quick thing I do want to add on that, on the Moderna, is that I've done a lot of work on Moderna and I will be sharing that with everybody soon. But what I would ask is that if you look at Moderna dosage, and I know there's a slight difference in formulations between Pfizer and Moderna, but a child's dose of Moderna is uh, 25 micrograms of mRNA, as I believe, and Pfizer is three micrograms. That's a huge difference, three micrograms on Pfizer and 25 on Moderna. So whether that's the new dose on that, new, I need to check, but my a big warning out on Moderna, and if any product coming down the line from Moderna, please see it with a red flag attached to it and a black triangle. Yes, okay, thanks, Debbie. And let's move on to, co I believe there's COVID summits. Yes, now I'd like to um, thank Josie very much for forwarding uh, this email on from um, Jocelyn, who asked me if I knew that four members of the European Parliament um, had given a, a press conference shortly after the COVID, the third international COVID summit that took place on May the 4th at the European Parliament. So thank you very much indeed, Jocelyn, for that, because I didn't know that that had taken place. Um, there were a lot of very, very important people there, including Do Dr. Robert Malone and plenty of MEPs and MP. So let's just take a look at one of the MPs. Now, I'm terribly sorry, Alex might have to help me out on this, uh, but uh, I'd like you to listen to the MEP Mislav Kolakusic, who's a Croatian lawyer um, and politician. He's an MEP. He's been uh, speaking up against the narrative right from the get-go. He called uh, Trudeau's COVID mandates a dictatorship of the worst kind, and he's also taken the European's medicine agency to task. So let's have a listen to what he said. I would like uh, shortly to warn um, people from upcoming uh, danger for humanity. The World Health Organization wants all countries to sign an agreement on handing over the authority to declare a pandemic, procure vaccine and drugs. It will be healthier and safer for humanity to sign agreement with the Colombian drug cartel. They know how, uh, all about the drugs for sure. During the COVID pandemic, World Health Organization only told lies about all things. 
It should be declared a terroristic organization and their lives and health of billions of people it putting in their hands it's extremely danger they lie that is a new and no and unknown virus that is possible to make an effective vaccine that the vaccine is 82% effective that is protects against serious illness and deaths that all of course were foolish and lies Today, World Health Organization is more dangerous organization for humanity than World Economic Forum. Thank you. So he didn't mince his words then. And um, he was shortly followed on by uh, Christine Anderson, who, of course, is the German MEP. Um, let's listen to what she said. How did they fail and where did they fail to get the people to just do what they were told to, you know, uh, comply? Um, and they will take this to the next level. So we're talking, of course, about uh, digital ID. It's in preparation. We're already talking about this. Um, the parliament circumvented itself pretty much by taking uh, with a large majority a vote to not even involve parliament. Uh, it goes directly behind closed doors uh, to negotiate the digital ID. Um, the next thing we will be seeing is, of course, um, CBCD, uh, the uh, state digital state currency. Um, that will be the ultimate blow to uh, de depriving us of all of our freedom uh, and privacy. And uh, yeah, and of course, these uh, 15 minute ghettos that I already talked about yesterday. Um, these are the next steps. And uh, I, once again, I want to make it clear, we're not talking about some future projects 40, 50 years down the line. We are talking about as in right now that they're working on. And once again, we need the people on our side on this to fight this, to raise awareness and to let their government, especially the national governments know they will not deal with that and they will not accept this. That's what we need the people for. Thank you. So there you have it. I don't know if anybody's got any comments. Well, it's uh, it's great to see people having the courage to speak out like that. It's starting to happen. It's important, I think, that everybody gives these kinds of people massive support because for them to receive emails of support or letters is a big boost. Um, so yeah, Gary, absolutely. That's Sorry, go Sorry, ahead. Mike, go on. No, I was just going to say, while we were just still on the quickly on the European theme, I'm afraid I haven't got a slide, but I just wanted to give a quick shout out for Marta uh, da Silva Gamero. She's the very brave dentist in uh, Portugal who's been um, involved in organising all sorts of conferences with regards to the World Health Organisation, as you heard just there. She has a conference for anybody in Portugal who'd like to go May the 20th to 21st. We'll put the details in the show notes. Okay, uh, Debbie, thank you. Let's move on to uh, cancer and the NHS. Yeah, well, cancer, all of a sudden, uh, we're being told one in two gets cancer. It seems to be a massive cancer agenda, and we're seeing figures absolutely exponentially rising. And here you can see the Mail Online running a story, NHS patients are getting cancer, which is a strange way to write it, are getting cancer and being left in so much pain, they can't climb stairs because of record 7.2 million waiting lists. Um, NHS data shows they were an agonising 7.22 million patients in England, 
queuing for routine procedures in February. Now, we've been talking for a long time about the levels of cancer and also the fact that there's been early cancer testing. And I've always said, you know, we're getting these bowel tests through our doors. People are being asked for to, to send uh, blood and go for blood tests for early screening. You can see there, this is the uh, Galeri trial. Um, the Galeri trial is run by Grail Cancer Research. Now, Grail was originally formed with by Bill Gates and Jeff Bezos. And we've been saying for ages, you know, it's all very well picking up cancer early, but these people who are have been picked up with cancer they're sitting at the end of a, a huge long waiting list. But really, very interestingly and worryingly, um, what's come out just recently from Truth for Health Foundation, and I'd like to thank Dr. David Cartland for sending me this, um, the Truth for Health Foundation is, is membership of so many amazing people that are putting out some incredible news. And they've just broken this story that Pfizer's jab would seem to contain the SV40 sequence which is known as a promoter of the cancer virus. Um, in the next slide, you can see the tweet from um, Dr. David Cartland and also a translation. There is a video of this, um, but it's all um, Professor Murakami of Tokyo University is speaking in Japanese, so it's subtitled. So I just put the translation up there. So Professor Murakami of to to uh, Tokyo University of Science Pfizer's mRNA vaccine had plasmid DNA, so when I checked it, I was surprised to find the SV40 sequence. SV40 is a promoter of cancer viruses, and the presence of this sequence facilitates the translocation of DNA to the human nucleus, easier to enter the genome, even though it's a sequence that is completely unnecessary to make an mRNA vaccine. Why SV40? The plasmid DNA map submitted by Pfizer to the European Medicines Agency does not appear to include SV40. Why did you hide it? Now, SV40, as, as this, this is, is rightly highlighting, it would seem to be a promoter of tumours. So waking up latent disease. And we've been talking about the way that latent diseases have been making a re-emergence like herpes, um, syphilis, gonorrhea, HIV. And now we see this huge rise of cancer. And we have to ask ourselves, is there a connection between the injection and the cancer rates, I think there might be. But until we have the data, we're never going to know. Okay, Debbie, thank you very much for that. I'll just add that we're, we're also getting a lot of traffic, uh, really, from people across the world about the key subject of the, of the jabs. And uh, this is one email uh, that came in, and uh, the headline was, Listen to the lies told by New Zealand health experts about the mRNA vaccine being safe for pregnant women versus the truth. So I just wanted to emphasize that people are standing up. And then of course, when we've got MPs who are actually brave enough to stand up and say, we need to pay attention to the damage being done to people, Andrew Bridgen, um, I, I think this is the most appalling attack uh, on somebody by the Daily Mail. They should be ashamed of themselves. They're not dealing with the injuries and deaths from the vaccines. Uh, they are smearing Andrew Bridgen with this uh, Holocaust thing, which I think is absolutely disgraceful. Andrew Bridgen has just uh, uh, given a, a short speech um, as part of the Reclaim Party. Uh, let's just listen to what he had to say to the public. I think it was earlier today, in fact. 
My name's Andrew Bridgen. I'm the Member of Parliament for North West Leicestershire. We're here at Breeden on the Hill Church, somewhere I come to recharge my batteries in the constituency. For the last 13 years, it's been a, a, an honour and a privilege to represent you, the people of North West Leicestershire, as your Member of Parliament in London. When I was first elected, I promised that I'd try and make North West Leicestershire a better place to live, to work and to visit. And I think we've achieved that and there's so much more we can do together. North West Leicestershire was always considered a poor part of the county. We're now the richest, the only part of our county which has above average UK salaries because of the extra jobs we brought in. There's 1.2 jobs for everyone of working age in the constituency. We've got the longest council tax freeze in the history of the UK. Unemployment is a fraction of the national average. We're not just building new houses and new jobs with new industrial estates in northwest Leicestershire. We're building communities. The ability to go out to work and keep more of your own money, freedom of speech, protection of your own family, taking responsibility for your own affairs, they're the bedrock of this country and that's how we've prospered over the years. There doesn't seem to be a party in Westminster that embodies those values anymore. There's a huge chasm now between our parliament and what goes on in Westminster and the people. And that chasm is getting ever wider. We used to have a parliament that legislated for the people. Now we have a parliament that inflicts laws upon the people. When the people are scared of the politicians, that's tyranny. And when the politicians are scared of the people, that's democracy. That's why I've joined the Reclaim Party, because they respect free speech as the basis for every aspect of our democracy and our society. Well, a powerful ending to uh, Andrew Bridgen's uh, speech there, that all the clip that we've taken. And we cut it at that point because he's, he's made it black and white. We are now effectively at war with our own government or the own, our own government's at war with the people. And uh, free speech is under more attacks. Well, it is indeed. So here's uh, Ofcom's uh, report from yesterday uh, on GB News. So Ofcom finds GB News in breach of broadcasting rules for a second time. This, of course, is related to vaccine content. So let's see what they had to say. Uh, an Ofcom investigation is day, uh, today found that uh, Mark Stein, that's yesterday, that the Mark Stein program, which first aired on GB News on 4th of October 2022, in breach of our broadcasting rules. The programme included an interview between presenter Mark Stein and a guest, Dr. Naomi Wolf. Uh, during the interview, Naomi Wolf made serious claims about the COVID-19 vaccine, including that its rollout amounted to pre a premeditated crime, mass murder, and was comparable to the actions of doctors in pre-Nazi Germany. Uh, so again, you know, they're trying to pull the Holocaust card here uh, effectively uh, to discredit Naomi Wolf. It's important to stress that in line with the right to freedom of expression, broadcasters are free to transmit programs that include controversial and challenging views, including about COVID-19 vaccines or conspiracy theories. However, alongside this editorial freedom, the Broadcasting Code imposes a clear requirement that if such content has the potential to be harmful, undefined, uh, the broadcaster must ensure that its audience is adequately protected. So in other words, you're free to talk about COVID-19 vaccines, you're free to talk about conspiracy theories, but if as an editorial decision, you as a broadcaster happen to agree with uh, any comments about COVID-19 vaccines, uh, you must uh, nonetheless 
make sure that your audience understands that there's another side to the story. Uh, so let's go on. Our investigation concluded that GB News fell short of this requirement by allowing Naomi Wolf to promote a serious conspiracy theory without challenge or context, for example, through other contributions in the program or by the presenter, who appeared to support many of her comments. Uh, there was also no scrutiny of the evidence she claimed to hold to support her claims. Now, the irony of this, of course, is that uh, there is never any scrutiny of government evidence in support of the so-called vaccinations. Uh, there is no scrutiny in the mainstream press for the government's assertions that we need to be fighting a war in Ukraine or supporting the fighting of a war in Ukraine and so on. So that scrutiny apparently only works in one direction. Uh, Ofcom goes on to say, uh, we found that the comments made by Naomi Wolf had the potential to impact viewers' decisions about their health and their wherefore, uh, uh, sorry, and that were therefore uh, potentially harmful. Uh, given that GB News did not take adequate steps to protect viewers from this potentially harmful content, we have found that the channel is in breach of Rule 2.1 of the Broadcasting Code. And then they ended by saying, this is the second significant breach of the code recorded against GB News. Uh, and the typo, by the way, is theirs. I chose to leave it in. Uh, in light of this, we are requesting that GB News attends a meeting with Ofcom to discuss its approach to compliance. Uh, Alex, uh, I know you were aware of this story, so I just wonder what your thoughts are. Um, and, uh, you know, this is an approach to compliance. It's sort of, we are going to enforce the rules here, our rules. Yes, it's uh, it's Kafka-esque, isn't it? It's uh, come and give account for yourself, otherwise the gloves will come off. And, you know, for uh, shorter term viewers, we saw off at UK Column uh, a previous incarnation of this when, of course, a, a spin-off of what's now become uh, Ofcom, calling itself uh, the Association for Television on Demand, was saying we have the right to regulate you, UK Column, because you are television-like for effectively the very same things just under a decade ago. Uh, we were too slick, we were told, and uh, most particularly, and this would absolutely apply a decade on, we bring on experts, whether it's experts uh, from campaigning, such as the noble Kim Isherwood with us today, or experts from academia or wherever it may be. And uh, Naomi Wolf is in that category as a very broadly read academic who currently is writing about cultural and spiritual issues uh, as well. So she's extremely broad minded and, and well read, well versed. Uh, but the, the, the attitude here is um, you presented her to the plebs as an expert, but she's not an expert because we don't like the look of her. So don't do that again, or we'll revoke your license. Yes, yeah. uh, and that is that is the risk. Uh, so uh, yes. Anyway, okay, let's move on uh, quickly. If you like what the UK Column does, you'd like to support us, uh, please head over to community.ukcolumn.org. There are options to help us out there. Uh, you can pick something up at the UK Column shop, uh, but in any case, please do share material you find on the various platforms, especially ukcolumn.org. Okay, thank you for that. Well, um, Monday we covered the, oh, sorry, before, before I get on to the coronation, it's in my mind. Uh, we've just got a um, couple of emails here. This one I liked a lot, sent to us from the depths of North Norfolk, and somebody had spotted on a local notice board, uh, let's highlight this, 
Um, so we'd got Salthouse Village Coronation Picnic and above it uh, was all about the UK column. And so the email said to us, you've made it into deepest North 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 Norfolk. So thank you very much for that. And uh, Debbie, you've got a, a little advert for this um, conference here, May 2021 this year. Oh, yeah. Thank you. I didn't realise we had a slide for it. So thank you very much for that. And yes, again, for uh, Marta, um, who's at, you can find her interview on UK Column, um, but she's organising another amazing conference with some great speakers, May the 20th to 21st. And she welcomes everyone, uh, but particularly any of our viewers that may be watching in Portugal and in Spain that would like to attend. They'd be most welcome. OK, thank you. And also your blog very quickly. Yeah, Bill Gates goes nuclear. If you want to find out more, have a look at my blog this week. Okay, thank you for that. So uh, to get uh, to the right uh, point, on Monday we were talking about the coronation and we said there needs to be more discussion about this. Well, we got quite a lot of uh, emails and comments coming in and people supporting us. They clearly want to talk about the coronation. So this was just uh, one of the emails that came through. It said, I'm sure you'll be inundated with stuff about Saturday's events, but in view of your suggestion, you'd like to spend more time discussing the coronation. This talk by Tony Pierce will be a good resource. Now, I haven't watched this, so I'm just putting it up raw. Uh, perhaps viewers would like to look at it and tell us what they think. I've got this one here. What was it with the yellow and blue carpets, floor covering Westminster Abbey? Something to do with Ukraine. I found the whole thing disturbing. The headdresses, brackets, World Economic Forum on Princess Catherine, Princess Charlotte and the Duchess of Edinburgh. What's wrong with the tiaras worn in the past? The druid-like clothing of Penny Mordant's mentioned here. Uh, I am a POM living in Australia. I never miss your show and have persuaded several of my Australian friends to tune in to you. So thank you very much for that email and uh, your comments, which I'm sure other people will pick up on. Um, this uh, was sent through to us actually by David Scott earlier this morning. So it was the trumpet, King Charles coronation. What a missed opportunity. I just decided to... Uh, put a header in here because Monday I was struggling to describe how I felt about the coronation. I know it was dripping with hypocrisy, um, but I think that actually what I was watching was a counterfeit coronation. And I'll ask Alex uh, to tell me whether I was right in a few minutes. Um, but uh, just to take a little bit of the Trumpets article, it said there have been some wonderful words in the coronation, but no light is really shining from the throne in Britain because of the deeds of those sitting on the throne do not match. Uh, the coronation told the world that the Bible is the most valuable thing in the world, uh, but the royal family are not sending that message by the way they live their lives. Camilla was crowned, uh, but uh, we've got a divorcee with whom King Charles had an adulterous affair. So the trumpet is being pretty tough. It also goes on to talk about women bishops. It talks about the Church of England approving homosexual marriage. Um, and um, it also mentions the fact that African members are splitting with the Anglican Communion as they don't like the teachings of the new church. 
And uh, then it goes on to remind people that after the big event, there was a pop concert, Windsor Castle's first pop concert. And so the point being made is we've got these pop stars who are clearly not Christian or of that mind in any shape or form, but they're being drawn into more events with the royal family. I didn't know Kermit the Frog had sent congratulations. <laughs> I think that's totally appropriate. <laughs> well, okay. Thank you for that. Um, well, uh, I couldn't resist this. I mean, criticized the Daily Mail. They have had uh, some good photographs of the event. Um, just horrible. These are the right honourable people, uh, the people that we're told we should be honouring uh, because they're so upstanding and honest and trustworthy. And it uh, just really makes me laugh. Um, I thought this picture was particularly vile. Of course, Boris there with a, you know, what is this man? He's still a 16-year-old schoolboy as far as I'm concerned. But just the look of these people, despicable to um, Cameron there as well. But also papers picking up on the fact that Rishi Sunak read from the Bible. I found this interesting because if he's a, a fully believing Hindu, can he possibly believe what's in the Bible? So uh, it seemed to me to be undermining the service itself, but also undermining the Hindu faith. Um, let's just look at the little video clip here, which uh, shows Sunak in action. Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, well, there you have it. I'm going to pass it over to you at this point, Alex. Um, we've got some. We've still got some very good material, and uh, Debbie is keen to take us on a trip through the high street. Um, but I know you've got some interesting stuff here to do with the coronation. What do you think? Let's start with Rishi Sunak. His reading of the passage from the epistle of Paul to the Colossians was superior in diction, grammatical understanding, intonation and sincerity to that of, for example, Dr. Sarah Mullally, Bishop of London, uh, who fluffed the grammar audibly in her reading uh, from Luke's Gospel, uh, making a stress on, and there was presented to him the book of the prophet Isaiah, as if there was a demonstrative there. Uh, this, of course, is mainly due to Rishi Sunak having been first at Stroud and then head boy at Winchester, uh, which uh, I have no hesitation in saying is our finest public school of all, certainly for uh, that kind of thing. So like so many other Asian and African uh, boys who come to the leading British boarding schools, he can do a jolly convincing act of reading from the Christian scriptures because the head boy, for example, in most of these public schools uh, reads at least once a year, if not termly, in chapel to the full chapel, and they really get educated in it. I don't think that we can say that Rishi Sunak here personally believes that passage because it's a very striking one. It's, it goes to the heart of Christian theology, particularly Christology, um, because you know Paul is writing here to 
pull up the Colossian Christians by the bootstraps and say, you're not honoring Christ enough. He's the center of all creation. How could this possibly be transferred to a believing Hindu? Of course, Mr. Sunak swore his parliamentary oath on the Bhagavad Gita. Uh, his parents are uh, Punjabis from the large wave that came to Africa. Um, not reconcilable. And if, you, if you're if you a universalist kind of Hindu, you could try to equate Christ as Sandhu with either Rama, Krishna or Vishnu, which take your choice. Uh, there will be problems anyway. There are, uh, at the other end of the scale, Hindutva type Hindus, fundamentalists. Uh, I don't think Mr. Sunak has ever flaunted you know, with that, that or, or flirted with that wing of Hinduism. I think, like so many that I rub shoulders with at rugby, he sees it as much of a muchness and thinks that there's some kind of divine light coming out of whatever religion and scriptures you swear on. But this is the worst passage of all to try to venture that 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 game on because it is the distinctiveness of Christ. It even you know uh, it causes a shibboleth between the mainline Christian denominations. What what he read in that passage from Colossians and some of the other uh, fringe movements of Christianity that don't accept all that's said in that passage. So rather questionable. And of course, being a professional Bible translator, my attention went to uh, the Bible that was presented presented by the moderator of the Church of Scotland, with embossed with the current year on it, um, uh, red leather, I think it was. And the first question that shot to my mind is, uh, what translation was that? Uh, Charles is a stickler for the Book of Common Prayer and in biblical terms, the King James or authorised version. I don't know what translation that was. Debbie's shaking her head in the background. She perhaps has read that it wasn't the King James. Perhaps that would be down to the moderniser, uh, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Again, he's de denied his roots because he was 20 years before me at Cambridge Intercollegiate Christian Union. It was very, very evangelical and biblically strong in his day, even in mine in the 90s. I've got the archive of recordings. I know what he was listening to as a student. He knows what the church believes about Colossians 1. He knows that Sunak can't read it in good faith. So let's cycle back to your first question. Uh, was it a counterfeit coronation? Not in the wording. They went absolutely by the book. I was so relieved that they did not mess with the coronation oath. It was pretty close to the statutory text from 1688. Um, there was, uh, Charles read it with complete sincerity and panache, uh, all the forms that he was given from the 1688 wording. Um, what else can we say about the, the the coronation oath? There was no inveigling of statutory law into the coronation oath, which people were alarmed about in the last few days. So it was done by the book. The insincerity, as you hinted, Brian, came from the at attendees and the personal uh, lack of belief uh, by all those attending. Sunak is simply the most visible because he is from a Hindu family. Uh, right, but that right. doesn't exonerate the others who claim to be cradle Anglicans. They, of course, are... You know, more than Mr. Sunak, who's faithful in his marriage, they, they are the usual bunch of adulterers and liars and thieves and things that you can't accuse Mr. Sunak of being. Thank you. Thank you, Alex. We, we, we will have to do more on this because as we drill into it, it gets more and more interesting. But uh, very quickly, take us through your, um, your additional slides here. I happened to be in Westminster Abbey yesterday, uh, Mrs. Thompson, who's just gone back to the Netherlands without me because she has to resume her hospital duties tomorrow. Uh, being a Dutch woman was very keen to see the Abbey more than I was, but we did have, at least have the treat of seeing the uh, uh, throne of Edward there uh, in the middle of the lantern, as they call it, in the in the centre of the Abbey before it was moved back to the side and before the Stone of Schoon was carefully uh, exfiltrated from the lower compartment and sent back David Scott's way. So um, the interesting part here was that one of the chaps making sure that nobody makes off with the Stone of Schoon, uh, doing the bag searches, uh, greeted me with a handshake and said, UK column, I don't miss an episode. So there you are, the gentleman guarding the treasures of state includes some 
who watch UK Column. Here in uh, something that many who visited the Abbey will recognise is part of a wrought iron uh, Old Testament uh, gatework. It was just showing the first three commandments of the Ten Commandments, not even the whole of the first table. And uh, this came to mind because uh, during the... Um, uh, homage, or just after the homage, uh, towards the end of the coronation service, uh, the king uh, was sung to by a solo singer who enthusiastically belted at him, uh, follow the commandments, I think it was, or honour the commandments, one of those verbs, but certainly obey the commandments was the gist of it. And I did I find myself thinking, yes, especially number seven, thou shalt not commit adultery. So again, Mr. Sunak's not the worst culprit uh, in, in, in sincerity. And just for, particularly for David, I took, uh, sorry, for, for Debbie, I took a shot of this towards the top end of the abbey, the east end. Uh, there is a window commemorating the philanthropists, or if you prefer philanthropaths, the Sackler family. Uh, well-known pharmaceutical barons who've got their own window at the top there. Ah, yes, I have a bit more in my segment, which I'll go straight on to as we're short of time. Uh, Canada is once again showing that uh, it is ahead of the pack in the Commonwealth in secularising um, what's going on with the Crown. So the National Post has a comment by John Iverson. <clears throat> Carrying on from what we said last week about Can the Canadian Parliament assenting to uh, changes to which would remove the, or have removed the title Defender of the Faith from Charles in right of his realm of Canada. Likewise, uh, the St. Edward's Cross that has been part of the Royal Coat of Arms since uh, Elizabeth's uh, reign will be replaced by a, a non-cross uh, crown on the coat of arms. Um, so you could, there's comment here which people can uh, read by, by pausing. Um, an author, uh, Christopher McCreary, says that uh, what's been cooked up in secret, we don't have images of the new, new, new um, federal Canadian coat of arms yet, but the, the crown on it supposedly means that there is no connection to the king or to the coronation. I did walk past Canada House on Trafalgar Square yesterday and they had a big uh, exhibition up about Charles's reign over Canada, but I didn't see any new coat of arms there. Um, he says it's equi equivalent to a new national flag being raised on Canada's National Day, Canada Day, with no consultational debate. This isn't just uh, heraldry here. This indicates that the Crown is a very, very complex issue, particularly in the realms of Canada and Australia, uh, because they have made efforts 40 years ago to patriot their constitution. And every time I mention this issue, Canadian and Australian viewers say, you're wrong about this or that, uh, because the experts and the dissidents are not one in and of themselves. What we can, I think, observe by this point is there are attempts in both Ottawa and Canberra to say, we are the crown, we tell Charles what to do, and he's just by the by. And uh, the, the final bit of, of that um, article there says that such changes uh, would require the approval of the monarch, and they're referring here to a previous one with a Latin motto in the 90s under Pierre Trudeau. But King Charles would have had little option but to say yes. He, he's strong-armed by the Privy Council in right of Canada, it says, and the, the Governor-General. So um, that's interesting. And let's go to the, the, the five uh, Just 30 realm. seconds on this one, please, Alex. The f very well. The Five Eyes realm, which doesn't have a patriation of its constitution, is New Zealand. And uh, Bryce Edwards, an academic at the University of Wellington, was writing at the time of the uh, demise of the Queen, September last year, and said uh, New Zealand will not become a republic, despite the current Prime Minister, Chris Hitchens's uh, avowed republicanism and the groundswell, because they have treaties to negotiate. And again, far too involved to go through now. They're quoting a former Foreign Secretary of New Zealand, Don McKinnon, saying that the Maori would actually hold it up. Because unlike Canada and Australia, where there were 
shortcomings in making treaties with the native people, New Zealand came into being as a treaty organisation. Waitangi was a treaty between the Crown and the Maori to share the land. So here again, because New Zealand has never repatriated anything, uh, it's all in Westminster and there's no codification there, we're going to see through the prism of New Zealand, I think, in this reign, exactly where the power of the Crown resides. Uh, hint, it's the Cabinet Office, as far as I can tell. Yeah. Okay. Thank you very much for that. Uh, okay, Debbie, let's just uh, finish uh, with the high street. Well, that actually, gentlemen, I know you're running short of time, and if you want to hang on to that until next week, no, that's no, perfectly let's, fine. Let's, and let's do this. To zip through. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, I've been looking at the high street, and I just think we've been talking a lot about 15-minute cities and 20-minute neighbourhoods, but actually, right under our noses we've got some serious issues going on in the high street. So I'm just going to flip through some slides very quickly, so freeze them. Um, but you'll see uh, um, M&Co are to close 43 stores by the end of April. And then if you just flip, literally flip through them, you can see John Lewis. They're going to ditch 50% of their um, sales retail space. Uh, Marks and Spencer's there. They're closing so many stores. And on that particular day, there was two B&M closing more stores. So we're not just talking high street. We're talking retail parks too. Banks, Barclays are shutting 95 bank branches in 2023. Uh, the next one is Tesco's. So they're, now this is pharmacists. So this is very interesting. So Tesco's are closing eight in-store pharmacists. But it's not just Tesco. We seem to have pharmacists closing all over the place. So Lloyd's, they'll be closing their pharmacists in Sainsbury's. So we're going to have no pharmacists there. And we're going to get scores of pharmacies closing all over England. Now, they've been talking about community pharmacists, as we know, but clearly we can see that the pharmacist is going to disappear from the high street. Well, and the high street is going to... Sorry, Mike, Sorry, on. I was just going to say this is very strange because the government has just pushed out this little video uh, on Twitter well, yesterday. And of course, we were talking about uh, this on Monday's program uh, because they're funding these new uh, phone systems and digital chat systems, online messaging tools for, for GPs. But what they say very clearly in this little video clip that they released on Twitter is that uh, they're going to be uh, extending the issuing of, of prescriptions to uh, local pharmacies so that you're not going to be queuing up for your GP because pharmacists will be able to supply medicines better uh, and quicker than the GPs can. And of course, if you go directly to the pharmacist, then you don't have to bother the GP and therefore you're not going to be waiting in a queue on a telephone system. So how does that work? Well, clearly it doesn't. And they've been saying for ages now, in fact, people have been saying that during lockdown, that everybody was going to their local pharmacists because there was simply nowhere else to go. And pharmacists are actually complaining and they're saying, we're not trained to do this. We don't know the patient's medical records, but now apparently they're going to get access to medical records. Pharmacists aren't liking it. So it's not going to work. And we're all going to have to rely on pharmacists. It's going to go online. And meanwhile, we've got the NHS are just going to open up all these hubs on our high street, so these one-stop diagnostic hubs, um, so we haven't got to go very far. This is what I mean. It's all happening around us. Um, and if you look at the Public Health England, who've got a healthy high street um, document, I won't go through it. I'll just freeze the screen. But you can see there, they're talking about green and blue infrastructure, traffic calming, street furniture, crime prevention and security. This is Public Health England. This is fusing, fusing health on the high street. And you can see the NHS Confederation, they're in it up to their necks as 
well, because this is a really big agenda. The high street is going to turn into your health hub. And uh, going on to London, especially, we've got Transport for London and Sadiq Khan there saying, my vision to create healthy streets aims to reduce traffic pollution and noise, create more attractive, accessible and people-friendly streets where everyone can enjoy spending time and being physically active and ultimately to improve people's health. So right in front of our eyes, we can see the 15-minute cities, the 20-minute neighbourhoods are pretty much already on us. Brilliant. Excellent. Debbie, thank you very much for that. We, we've never got enough time these days to do the news. Uh, we're going to end with this uh, image, um, which uh, we have to ask a question. Here's the lady. Um, she's wearing a striking T-shirt with a raised clenched fist and um, a Soviet-style red star behind it. Uh, on the arm, it says anti-monarchy, anti-Britain, anti-wealth, eco-zealot. Marxist. Now, I don't know whether this lady is wearing a T-shirt because she believes in it or she's mocking what it's saying. So we'll leave the audience to decide that. But of course, what we do know is that, of course, uh, our, our country and our society, our communities, our history being taken apart deliberately from the inside. So Perhaps this lady is on to something if we uh, treat her from the nice side. We've got to end there. We're going to say thank you very much to all our viewers and listeners wherever you are in the world. Thank you very much to everybody that donates to the UK column or is part of the team through um, subscription. Uh, we can only do what we do with your financial help. So, um, Alex, Kim, Debbie, thank you very much for joining us. We'll leave it there. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.